you want victory, you can have it in Christ Jesus. Time once again for Abiding in Christ with Jim Wood. You have to step back, evaluate the various positions in light of Scripture, and then re-engage with a godly perspective. Pastor Wood is the founder of Weirs Valley Ranch, a Christian home and school for kids from crisis family situations. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You can contact the program by calling 866-41-ABIDE or by visiting us on the web at wvr.org. And now, without further delay, here's your host, Jim Wood. You would please open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 8. And we're going to start with verse 53 from chapter 7 and read through the first 11 verses, John chapter 8. This is the reading from God's Word. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. May God help us to understand and apply this. Um, I don't know what translation you're looking at. I don't know what edition you're looking at. But if you're looking at almost any Bible these days, it's going to have this passage set off differently, separately. Might use a different font. Might just have a little line above the 53rd verse of chapter 7 and underneath the 11th verse. And if you have any sort of footnote whatsoever, you'll undoubtedly find a footnote there indicating something along these lines, that these verses do not appear in the earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel. Uh-oh. Is this some modernist conspiracy in order to undermine your confidence in the Bible? Well, it sure shouldn't be. Because 
The fact that we know this isn't in the earliest manuscripts reinforces the reliability of the earliest manuscripts. And why is it in there at all? If this isn't really part of the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, why, why, why are we even going to talk about it today? Why didn't you just go ahead and start with verse 12 and go on from there? Because throughout church history, this story has been one of the beloved stories from John's Gospel. I'll tell you further that in some of the early manuscripts, this story appears in Luke, either here or here. And in some manuscripts of John's Gospel, it appears, but not here. It appears elsewhere. So is this a true story or not? Actually, the testimony of the church is that this is probably a true story. It just wasn't part of John's Gospel originally. If, if it's in the book, why don't we just accept this as part of the gospel? Well, I think it's fine if you want to accept it as part of the gospel, but if you want to know the facts as to whether or not this was actually written by John as part of his telling of the testimony, maybe you ought to look toward the end of John's gospel. How about John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31? This is God's word. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, that not everything has been written down. If all of it was written down, he says, elsewhere, that the world couldn't contain the books. But these things have been written, so that you will know who Jesus is. And that you will trust him, because if you trust him, you have eternal life. That theme runs all through John's Gospel. Does this fit with that? Well, yeah, actually it does. Because what we see in these verses is Jesus came to save sinners. Well, what's a sinner? It's uh, all of us. It's somebody who violates God's law. So if you sin, you become a sinner? No. You're born a sinner. All of us are. And therefore, we sin. The things we do wrong and the things we fail to do that we should do and the sorry attitudes that we embrace a lot of the time, all of that is just evidence of the disease that afflicts us from birth. And that is we're sinners. Our first parents lived in paradise 
And they didn't start out as sinners. They were innocent. There's a difference between virtuous and innocent. Virtue is when you're facing temptation and you say no. Innocence is when you're not even being tempted at this point. Okay? They were innocent, and they faced temptation, and they totally caved. They completely blew it. So, if you and I all start out just innocent, and then we say no to temptation, why, we would be virtuous, and, and we wouldn't need a Savior because we can save ourselves. But that's not the case. Because from our earliest opportunity, we all demonstrate that we too are by nature sinners. Who had to teach you to be selfish? Who had to teach you to be dishonest? Who had to teach you to do the wrong thing? Nobody. You got that with no tutoring, right? Now, God would be totally just and fair if having given us his law, which he not only gave in Scripture, but which he wrote on our hearts. All of us have a conscience. If God, seeing us violating our conscience, violating his word, not necessarily knowing all ten of the commandments, but breaking the ones we do know, if God saw that and said, you're done, I'm wiping you all out, totally fair, totally just. God created us with a purpose, and we have all demonstrated that we cannot save ourselves, we need a Savior. How many of you have ever tried to do the right thing and ended up blowing it? How many of you have ever faced a temptation, and after you've blown it, you've said, well, I will never do that again, and then you did? Okay? I mean, that's what we bring to the table. That's our great contribution to God, okay? Blowing it again and again and again and again. So how can we be made righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ? He is the one who takes all of our guilt upon himself and gives us his righteousness, the riches of his grace. Well, does this passage fit with that? Yes. There's nothing in these verses that contradicts the Scripture. And there is much in these verses that not only fits with Scripture, but that has the ring of an eyewitness account. In other words, the witness of the church is, we think this happened. We believe that this actually occurred. It just wasn't here in John's Gospel. But early in the church, somebody got hold of this and said, well, I think that belongs in the Bible. Well, 
They didn't have authority to make it part of John's gospel. But early on, it became part of the tradition. And mercifully, those who study God's word and wanted to get back to make sure this is really God's word, do we have the real thing here? Do we have the originals? We don't have the originals. But we have documents that are very, very close. Let me share with you something that someone posted online that uh, actually uh, is, is, I happen to know that this is correct. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was a scholar of past generations, said this, in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest manuscripts so short as in that of the New Testament. In other words, we've got the oldest and best manuscripts of any ancient record. Daniel Wallace says, do we have an embarrassment of riches? Oh, we sure do. In fact, on the basis of manuscript evidence, we can say that we have 1,000 times more evidence that Jesus Christ existed than we do that Alexander the Great existed. A thousand times more. Daniel Wallace also said, it just doesn't matter how you look at this. The New Testament, far and away, is the best attested ancient document from the Greco-Roman world. F.F. Bruce, who was a fabulous scholar, says there's no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Bruce Metzger, another great scholar, says the quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison with other works of antiquity. There are over 2.6 million pages of ancient manuscripts which we can compare and see. Is this accurate? Is this right? Is that really what he said? That's why we know that these verses weren't in the original as best we can tell, because all of the oldest manuscripts do not include this. Not because it's not in all of them, because it's in none of them. Okay? But again, we study this story because it does seem to be something that actually happened. Well, look at what happened. It was a trap. We know that Jesus' enemies frequently tried to trap him. And they came on this occasion with a woman that they said had been caught in adultery, and they wanted Jesus to tell them what should be done. Where was the guy? If they were concerned about Moses' law, Moses' law required that both the man and the woman should be dealt with. It did call for the death penalty, but it didn't specify stoning. That was only in the case of a betrothed virgin. So, they're twisting the law in order to try and put Jesus in a pickle. Well, what's the pickle? Just, you know, Moses' law compared to Jesus' kindness? No. Moses' law compared to Roman law. Under Roman law, the Jews could not do their own executions. So if Jesus says, well, yeah, I guess we got a stoner then, they can report him to Rome, to the Roman authorities. And if Jesus says, uh, no, we, we shouldn't do that, then they can say to the people, see, he does not believe in the law of Moses. So 
It was a trap. But Jesus' response, as always, to these traps was to blow them away with kindness. He simply bent down in silence and started writing on the ground with his finger. What did he write? I don't know. My favorite suggestion that has been made is he started writing the Ten Commandments. Ah, that would fit, especially in light of what he says. Because they're standing there and they're continuing to hit him with questions. What are we going to do? Jesus straightens up and he says, let the one of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he bends down and he keeps writing. And one by one, starting with the oldest, they all turn and walk away. Why? Because all of them have sinned. How do you know all of them have sinned? Because all of us have sinned. That's why I belabored that point at the start. That's why I talk about it over and over again. We're all sinners, folks. Quit trying to hide it. Quit trying to pretend. Every now and then, God reveals something else to me about my own horrible heart, and I realize, oh, Now, have you seen improvement? Have you grown in sanctification over the years, Pastor Wood? Please give me some hope that it does get better. Yes. I'm not as rotten as I was. I don't mess up as often as I did. I'm not sinless, but I do sin less. Okay? There's progress, thank God. But I'm not, you know... Boy, I hope the Lord waits another 20 years before he takes me home because I'm not ready yet. I'd have to go to purgatory. No, I'm going straight to heaven on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. That's the only hope for any of us. But because all of us have sinned, God intervened to bring salvation. And again, this passage is consistent with what John emphasizes in his gospel. John chapter 3, referred to it last time, verse 16, you know well. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Verse 17 should become just as familiar to you. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. He sent his Son to save us. Jesus came to save sinners. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's another verse. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What was our main point? Jesus came to save sinners, not just forgive sinners. At the end of this story, Jesus says, he straightens up again, all the accusers have scattered, and Jesus says to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't just come to forgive. He came to save. What's wrong with sin? Well, God hates it. Yes. Well, why does God hate it? Because God loves people. And sin destroys. Sin destroys. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so Satan will tempt you to do all kinds of things that look good, sound good, smell good, feel good. And it turns out, destroy you. Absolutely destroy you. All those sins, sexual sin, stealing, lying, people destroy their marriages, they destroy their relationship with their kids, they destroy their business success, they destroy, they destroy, they destroy, and that's why God hates sin. He cares about people. He doesn't want kids to suffer as a result of somebody else's chasing after pleasure. He cares about you. He doesn't just care about other people. He cares about you. And so when he says, don't do that, it's because he loves you. Why can't I touch the stove? Okay, I'm trying to reach the top of the stove. And you keep telling me no. Why? You even slapped my hand. When God says don't do that, it's because he loves you. He's not trying to rob you of joy. Stop listening to the lies of the devil. Start believing God. He loves you so much he sent his son to save all who put their trust in him. He'll save you if you trust in him. Well, I don't know. I've done some bad stuff. We've all sinned. Yeah, but I've done some stuff you don't know about. Yeah, but God does, and he says he loves you anyway. He does. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he's the chief of sinners. He says the reason God chose me is because I was so bad. And he wanted to demonstrate that if he can save me, he can save anybody. Don't believe the devil's lie that you're too bad. Don't believe the devil's lie that, okay, you can get forgiven and just keep on doing it. No, that's a lie too. Jesus came to save sinners, but to save us means that we're not only forgiven, we are increasingly being changed by him to become like him. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you asked him to save you? 
Are you still treating him as a concept instead of a person? That was where my life began. I believed that it was true, but I'd never responded to him. I cried out to him for mercy, asked him to save me. And when I did, you know what he did? He saved me. He saved me. That's what I want for you. I want you to not just believe intellectually, I want you to know him, have a relationship with him. You've been listening to Abiding in Christ. If you have questions that you'd like for us to tackle on the program or comments that you want to make, I want to invite our listeners to call 866-41-ABIDE. That's our toll-free number, 866-41-ABIDE. Or contact us on the web at wvr.org.